I don't know if you caught what Andrew said about the pulpit. He said it gets shorter every time he comes up here. It seems just fine to me. I don't know. <laughs> well, good morning. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, and we will begin in verse 1. When Stephen asked me to bring the message today, I was nearly brought to tears. What an amazing privilege to stand before God's people and to stand before the world and to echo the Word of God, to um, echo both the written Word of God and also the living Word of God, as Andrew so eloquently spoke about Jesus. I will say that Stephen told me not to preach too long, as if, as if he had, he's the one to talk, but uh, we should never take for granted all the work that Stephen does preparing the messages, and it's just, I truly believe we hear some of the best preaching in the country every Sunday here. So uh, it's, we are very grateful for that. We're very grateful for Josh, who ministers to us individually and to the young people, and for Dr. Dawn, for all the work that she does. We are so blessed in this church, and um, it's a thank, so thank, thank you, Lord. So if you will, follow along with me as I read from Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, what a joy to know you. You are great and awesome, and you work in amazing ways. You take young people from this congregation and you place them in Guatemala to minister to kids, to share the love of Jesus to those who have never even heard it. And so we give you the praise and the glory for that, and we thank you for that. We also thank you for this word, for this young man, Mark, who recorded this story. We pray that we will understand it and that it'll touch our hearts and change us to be more like your son. Father, we pray for your presence here. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. It was in 1836 that something very interesting happened. <laughs> something somehow remotely related to this sermon. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have no idea what that was. <laughs> so you'll have to wait until Stephen's return to learn more about that. But I would like to give you a little quiz. As was mentioned, I do teach, and so... We'll start with a quiz, and it'll be an, a literature quiz. 
So some of you will enjoy this. I'm going to read for you the three, some, some openings of novels, the very beginnings of some stories, and you're going to identify what those are. Are you ready? Call me Ishmael. Yeah, that's Herman Melville, Moby Dick. That was in 1851, so I don't know. We're keeping some kind of a tradition here. It is so second one. It is a truth universally acknowledged. Need I read more? <laughs> that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Yes, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen, 1813. One more. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub. And he almost deserved it. The Voyage of the Don Treader, that's right, C.S. Lewis, 1952. All three of these introduce a character and set a tone very much like the way that Mark introduces a character and sets a tone in verse 1. With Call Me Ishmael, we find out that Ishmael is talking directly to me. It's a very matter of a fact and very mysterious. When we hear that there's a single man in possession of a good fortune, what are we going to wonder but who might be the fortunate woman to be his wife? When we hear that there's a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, Scrub we all imagine that he got teased, but then we hear that he deserved it. So he must be a real stinker. So that brings us to the way that Mark begins his story, setting the tone, introducing the main character with a declaration in verse 1. And the declaration is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what does this opening sentence say? It says, I'm about to tell you a story. This is the most important story I could possibly tell. It's not for your entertainment. It's not even for your self-improvement. It is for your salvation. It is, for, it is the story of Jesus Christ, a man unlike any other man who ever lived, the Son of God. In this declaration, Mark is saying that this is the most important thing that I can possibly say. This, in fact, is the basis of my life. This is the foundation of everything. Let's review who Mark is, and I know many of you will be familiar with this. So we'll give another quiz, in fact. And in this case, we're going to identify the gospel writers. One of the gospel writers included a long string of genealogies. A couple of them did, but one in particular began with the genealogies. And oftentimes in his story of Jesus, he wrote, so the scripture might be fulfilled. And he wrote these things because he was writing to Jews him, Matthew, having grown up in that culture and knowing the people. So that would be the gospel according to Matthew. Another one of the gospel writers, he wrote more about women than any other gospel writers. He wrote about Jesus' birth. He wrote about shepherds. He gave us some stories that we wouldn't otherwise have. The story of the Good Samaritan. The story of the lost sheep and the prodigal son. You see, Luke, if you didn't know already... He wrote to the Gentiles, he wrote to women, he wrote to all of mankind. Who wrote these words? In the beginning was the Logos. A very philosophical statement to begin. The Apostle John, as you probably know, he wrote long orations and long prayers in his gospel because he was writing to a Greek audience who was very interested in the ideas. 
And so that brings us to the fourth gospel writer, Mark, whom we're reading today. And it was written to a Roman audience. When Mark wrote to a Roman audience, he knew he needed to get right into the action. And if you skim the first chapter alone, you will see that there are six supernatural events described even in the first chapter. His book contains lots of action, miracles, not as much teaching. Yet the last nearly half the book, chapters 11 through 16, describes the triumphal entry and on into the resurrection. And so Mark begins his story with a declaration. And the question that we ask ourselves is, can I make this same declaration about my life today? Can I say the beginning, meaning this is the foundation of reality. This is the answer to all the questions. This is the unifying theory, if you will. The beginning of the gospel. That is, I have good news. But first, you need to understand the bad news. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether or not you know this person will determine your destiny. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is divine. Unlike any of us, he came, he died for us, and he rose. Mark continues his story after a declaration with a prophecy that we read in verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now I'd like for you to imagine these verses when they were originally conceived, when they were originally spoken. So look at it again. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who is speaking? And who is he speaking to? You see, this setting is that of God the Father. So you can imagine thousands of years ago, before John ever appeared in the wilderness, God the Father speaking to his son, and he says, it is nearly time for you to go. You're going to go down. You're going to put on human flesh. You're going to dwell among the people. And they are going to observe your, the glory and the grace of you and your love. The people who are currently groping in darkness, who think they are in bondage to the Romans, these people are actually in bondage to their sin. Sin. And so God the Father says to his son, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, preparing your way. As we continue in verse 2, you'll see that it says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So this is Mark, again, speaking. The ESV actually says, as I just read, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. The, K the KJV reads, as it is written in the prophets. And if you look at this, there's actually two prophets. There are two prophets quoted. The first one is Malachi from chapter 3. And if you go to a community group this week, you will probably want to write that down because you will be asked. So the first one is Malachi chapter 3. And the second one is as our brother John Clemens read earlier from Isaiah chapter 40. 
So I wondered as I was reading this and as I've looked at it before, why does Mark say, as it is written in Isaiah, and then he quotes both Malachi and Isaiah? Because generally I would like to be more precise about that. And so I'm trying to understand that. And so what I'm going to do to help us understand that is to quote a passage for you. It will be a familiar passage. But before quoting it, I'm going to set the context for it by quoting a different passage. So I might say something like this. The Apostle John tells us, so listen real closely. The Apostle John tells us that though our sins be as scarlet, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you will recognize that as being 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, except maybe that first part where I said, though your sins be as scarlet. That's another familiar passage, which happens to come from Isaiah. And it would be legitimate for me to say, I'm going to quote Apostle John, such that we know that though our sins be as scarlet, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And so I kind of think Mark is doing a similar kind of thing here where he is saying, I'm going to quote Isaiah, but to set the context, let me step back and give you a familiar phrase from Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That's from Malachi 3. And then verse 3 in Mark 1, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That is indeed from Isaiah 40, as we heard earlier. Now, these passages, Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, could be considered a summary of the gospel because they give us both the good news and the bad news. Malachi 3 emphasizes our need for a Savior. Let me read some excerpts from Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger who will prepare the way before you, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. That sounds good. But verse 2 of Malachi 3 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Verse 5 says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift witness against... And then Malachi lists who the Lord is going to be swift witnesses against. He lists those who are unfaithful to their husband or wife, those who lie those who are unfair to their employees, those who do not care for the widows and the fatherless, those who are unkind to immigrants. In short, those who do not fear me, says the Lord. So we begin with that quote from Malachi 3, but we follow it on, follow it on quickly with a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Verse 2, speak tenderly. To Jerusalem. Because in the wilderness, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our, your God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough place a plain. What does that mean? Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. Sometimes you may be driving on a freeway, and this happens more now that we live on, in Virginia than it did where I grew up in Texas. But you'll be driving along on a straight highway, and there'll be 
hills on both sides of the highway rise. And then you keep going, and then the hills will go down, and then there'll be a deep valley, and then it'll come back up like so. You've, you've experienced that. And it's clear what's happened is that the civil engineers have come along, and they've pushed the top of this hill over into the valley to fill that area so that we could have a nice straight road going over these hills. And that's the idea presented here in Isaiah 40 and what John, uh, what was prophesied about John's ministry. And so while I don't know much about civil engineering, I'm always amazed and appreciative of their ability to move dirt and to make uneven ground level and to make rough places smooth. And though I don't know much about not only civil engineering, but neither salvation engineering, I'm amazed and appreciative of God's ability to make uneven ground level and make rough places smooth in my life over time. And this is exactly what John's life purpose was, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So that brings us to verses 4 through 5 and a baptism. So in verse 4, we read that John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Notice that it says, John appeared. And this is very typical of Mark's writing style. Again, very much active, very much getting straight to the point. It's like suddenly John was out there in the wilderness, out of the blue, when people were least expecting it, when they were going about their lives, people were getting about their business, when suddenly John appeared. Now for Father's Day, my wife got me some uh, a very generous gift. It was some of these little earbuds you put in your ears. And this particular one had noise cancellation which is pretty cool to me. So I could put those in and it drowns out everything else around them. The downside to that, downside of that is often when I have these on, suddenly someone appears and I startle because I didn't hear them walking up. I didn't hear their breathing. I'm listening to my music and the, the noise is being canceled around me. So that's the same kind of thing here. So imagine you're in first century AD and you're traveling, going about your business uh, Jesus hasn't appeared on the scene yet. And you're maybe traveling uh, from up in, uh, up in Galilee, going to, up, up to Jerusalem. And as you're going along, you come to the river. You decide to rinse off the dirt from the road. And suddenly, there's this wild-looking man on the other bank of the river looking at you. It's kind of creepy. He's got scraggly hair. He's got a long beard. That's, that's pretty creepy, a long beard, you know. But no, <laughs> can, we, can we cut out that part of the... Um, he's looking at you from across the river. He's wearing uh, camel's hair. He's wearing a leather belt. He's catching locusts from the tree, putting them in his mouth as he looks at you. He sees you, and then he yells across the river. And he yells, repent! <laughs> he says, prepare your heart. For the coming of the Lord. You are just going into the river to wash off the outside. You need to clean out the inside, he yells from across the river. So you gather up all your stuff and you go to town as quickly as you can and get out of there. And when you get to the inn, 
you ask people around, have you seen this guy? There's this wild man living out in the wilderness. And so people start going out to hear what he has to say. And Luke, when he's recording this story, he gives us more detail. And he says that when people came out, John would look at them and he would say something really nice like, you brood of vipers, you poisonous snakes. He would say, you're fruit trees without any fruit. You're no better than a dead rock sitting on the side of the road. But then he would stop and John would speak with compassion and he would say, God's wrath is coming. Repent. Because every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Over time, more and more people heard about the preacher out in the wilderness. And so verse 5 tells us, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Again, Luke gives us more details and tells us that the ordinary people, the farmers, the merchants, the fishermen, they were going out and listening to this man. There were also some who would come who weren't as interested in, in hearing with their hearts what he had to say. The Pharisees would come to judge him. Tax collectors would come to listen to what he had to say. Soldiers were even there, probably to make sure that this didn't get out of control, but they would listen. And Luke tells us that they asked John, what then shall we do? And John would say, whoever has more clothes than you need, give them to someone who doesn't have enough. John would say, whoever has food, give that to someone who has none. John would get specific. He would look at the tax collectors and he would say, collect no more than you are authorized to collect. He would look at the soldiers and he would say, do not demand money from anyone by threats or by false accusations. And then he would look across the whole crowd and say, be content with your wages. Who put that in there? Let's get rid of that. <laughs> be content with your wages. These are the marks of God's work in your life. Let me summarize those again. Generosity. Compassion. Honesty. Kindness. Contentment. These are the fruit of the Spirit. And so people were baptized, Mark tells us, they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. So here we are back at the river. We've heard more people are going out to see him. So we're on our way back up to Galilee. We decide to go back and see what's going on with this wild man. John is standing on one side of the river preaching. People are on the other side. So they don't have to get too close to listening. And John calls out. He says, if you want to humble yourself, if you want to pray, if you want to seek God's face, then turn from your wicked ways. And John starts walking out into the water and he calls over to the other side of the river and he says, meet me in the middle of this river. Come out here, confess your sins, ask God for forgiveness and I will dunk you under the water. And people were thinking, dunk us under the water? But then they would remember, you know, it's kind of like taking a symbolic bath, coming out there and cleansing myself of these sins. It's kind of like washing those sins off. And 
And the people would think, you know, actually this reminds me of the priests who before they would go before God, they would have to wash themselves down in a ritual purifying required by the law. And my, even some of them who were very familiar with the Old Testament would say, actually, you know what? It reminds me of that Syrian. What was his name? Naaman, who was told by the prophet to go and dip himself into the river seven times as an act of faith. And so people did it. They met John in the river. They confessed their sins. They walked out to be baptized. And when they walked back out of the water, they tried to live a better life. So Mark continues the story with more details about this messenger. Verse 6 says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Why do you suppose John had such unusual clothes and diet? I mean, it says he had camel's hair, so I'm imagining he's going through the desert and his old clothes that his mom had made him are just totally worn out. But he comes across a dead camel and he says, ah, perfect. And so he skins the dead camel, cuts a hole in it, puts it over his head, ties a belt, and is happy to continue on. Sounds great, right? So why did he do that? Why did he live in the desert where his diet was locusts? And I'm imagining that after a while, he realized that the locusts didn't taste so great. So then he added the wild honey. And oh, yes, that's much better. Now I can get it down. Why did he do all that? Why did he sacrifice like that? And the nice thing in this case is we don't have to speculate because Jesus told us. In fact, Matthew 11:7 7 through 10 records what Jesus said about this fact. And Jesus asked the people, why did you go out, or what, rather, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? I'm imagining the inside of a camel's skin is probably not soft. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet? And Jesus says, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. John was 100% committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He was willing to give up whatever was necessary so that he could fulfill God's plan for his life. He's living in the wilderness, not in a king's house, not the center of government or of human leaders. That's not how he's going to welcome in the Savior of the world. He's not even at the temple, which might be more reasonable, but he didn't want to be encumbered by any false religion or any traditions that people were placing their faith in that might be there. He wasn't in the university to welcome the coming of the Messiah because it's not going to be reason or education that's going to lead to salvation. He wasn't in the city where there are comforts and entertainments and culture. He was out in the wilderness, stripped away of all these distractions to encounter God. By being in the desert, John was calling people just to temporarily step away from all these transactions, all these distractions rather, to focus on the relationship with God. We can't do that all the time. Some of us are going to be working in the center of government. Some of us are going to be 
uh, in a university or uh, involved in the city. So we can't all live in the, uh, in the wilderness. But I do wonder if every once in a while we should do that. Like the people who went out to see John. Do we need to temporarily, at least, maybe permanently, step away from distractions in this world to focus on your relationship with God? Or maybe like John the Baptist, do you need to be willing to give up? You can fill in the blank. Whether it's soft clothes, whether it's <laughs> good food, cheesecake <laughs> for locusts and honey, I don't know. Do you need to be willing to give up something in your life in order to fulfill God's plan for you? According to Luke, the people who were listening, it says, Luke says, they were in expectation. And they were all questioning in their hearts concerning John whether this guy might be the Messiah, the Christ. They didn't know about Jesus yet, most of them. That's why John was very clear in verses 7 through 8, where he describes the Son of God. He says in verse 7, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You see, John, he had one purpose in his life. That purpose extended from before his birth. And what he was doing was preparing the way for someone else. He said, someone else is coming that is mightier than I. Someone else is coming who is worthier than I. Someone else who is coming is holier than I. You see, we need to have that same attitude. We need to point to Jesus Christ. We, our lives need to point to him. We need to recognize that I am weak, but he is what? He is strong. He who is mightier than I. He is worthy to receive glory, glory and honor and praise. As John said, I'm not worthy to fall on the ground in front of him and touch his shoes. All I can do is fall on the ground and worship him. As the hymn says, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, you are so perfect and I am such a sinner. So here I am, standing on the bank of the river. I've seen other people go down and confess their sins. I am grieved over my sin. And I repent of my sin. I turn from it. I listen to this crazy guy. I step down into the water. I confess my sin to John. He says, confess it to the people on the crowd. And I confess it to the people on the crowd. He says, confess it to the Father above. And I confess it to the Father above. I weep. I'm dunked, I walk out, and the next week I have fallen into sin again. What a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that brings us to verse 8. John says, I have baptized you with water this day. You have confessed your sin. You have stepped out of here and you've gone on with your life. But Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John says that Jesus' baptism will be unlike John's baptism. In fact, 
If you're keeping count, we could list three different baptisms this morning. There's John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. There is that, that's John's baptism. That, that's what happened in the Jordan to prepare people's hearts for Jesus' ministry. Then there's the spiritual baptism that John said was going to come through Jesus Christ. That was promised in verse 8. John, I mean, Jesus is baptizing us with the Holy Spirit when we are saved. Then the third baptism is the believer's baptism, for which we've made special accommodation in this auditorium behind me on the stage, in which Jesus ordained the church to perform this baptism, to recognize publicly and physically what God has done in someone's heart. John's baptism was a special baptism for a limited time to prepare the way of the Lord. And how did he do that? How did John prepare the way of the Lord? By pointing out people's sin. Because it is the bad news of the gospel. It's the prerequisite. It's the effect of the law and trying to keep the law. It is not itself salvation. It is good because the law but because though the law can never save us what can it do it can prepare the way of the savior Jesus's baptism on the other hand is for an inner transformation in which you are immersed not in water but into the holy spirit you go down into the holy spirit you breathe him in and it becomes part, or he becomes part of who you are. And that is the good news of the gospel. It is God's work in bringing you to eternal salvation. Jesus' baptism of, the, in, of you into the Holy Spirit is not a work of the law. It is a work of the cross. God saves us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy. Let's contrast John's baptism and the baptism of Jesus. One is for repentance, for the forgiveness of sin. But like drinking water, I know Andrew referred to this, like drinking water, you're going to be thirsty again. We're going to have to go back and confess our sins again. That's just the nature of, our, of the human existence. But the baptism that we have through Jesus Christ in the Spirit... That is a work of redemption. John's was a symbolic washing. Jesus's is a real transformation. John's was getting wet on the outside. Jesus is getting us filled on the inside. John involves water. Oops, sorry. John involves water. Jesus's is in another gospel described as fire. It's not like the priest's ritual cleaning. It's more like what happened to the disciples in the upper room when the tongues of fire descended over their heads. So I ask, I'm pretty sure that all of us have experienced the baptism of John. We recognize, most of us here, maybe not everyone, but most of us here will recognize that we are sinners and that we need to repent of that sin. But we also need to be baptized by Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit. Acts 
19 tells a sad story that I hope is not true in any hearts here. Acts 19 tells that one time when Paul arrived in Ephesus, he found there was a, a small congregation of, of 12 disciples, men who were seeking after God, who were meeting regularly, and they were eschewing sin in the world. They were encouraging each other to live moral lives. And in fact, they would even tell you, we are practicing the baptism of John for the repentance of sin. Because John's, John's ministry lasted for a while, and word of it spread, and people began a, a kind of revival, returning to what the law said and trying to live their life according to the law. But th these disciples that Paul met, as recorded in Acts 19, they hadn't yet heard about Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They had never fully committed to Jesus Christ as their Savior and as the fulfillment of that law. So don't let you, that describe you too. In closing, let's review what we have learned today. John was sent to prepare the way for the Savior. How did he do that? By calling people to repentance of sin. So I ask you, what valleys need to be lifted in your life? What mountains need to be made low in your life? Don't you want to see the glory of God, as Isaiah 40 had told us? Don't you want to look forward to that? If you have never been born again, it will take more than that regret of sin. And in fact, it even takes more than repentance because repentance is turning from sin to something else. That something else is only, can only be Jesus Christ. So do you recognize that Jesus is the answer? Do you, do you know that he is mightier than you? Have you met him at the river? Have you met Jesus at the river to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Maybe today you felt like you've encountered a crazy man in the wilderness. Calling you to repent, to turn away from sin, to turn to Jesus Christ for the first time. Maybe today the Holy Spirit is calling you. Maybe today is going to be a turning point in your life. If so, find me after the service. Let me know. I would love to pray with you and talk to you about the next steps. Let's pray. Father, what a joy to take this tour through Mark chapter 1, to experience what travelers experienced encountering a wild man. He was not the Messiah, but he was a prophet and more than a prophet. He was the one who was preparing the way for the Messiah. Lord, help us to do that. This week, I pray that we will tear down those high mountains in our life. We pray that we will fill in those valleys to prepare the way for the Savior. Lord, make him real every day to us. We pray that the rough places in our life will be smoothed out. We pray that we will make the path straight. Do that not only in our lives, but in the lives of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.